Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, we have sought to uh, generate a good deal of interest with this upcoming Sunday school class on Christianity and liberalism. Let me make a comment about it uh, before we actually get into the meat of things this morning. Uh, we've had a sign-up sheet out for books over the last several weeks, and I think that that sign-up sheet is full, and we've got another one going. Uh, this will be the book. It's $8, and you can, if you want to pay for that, however, you can you know, drop the check in the offering plate. You can put money on, on the desk in the church office, <clears throat> however you want to do that. It's going to be several weeks before we actually get into the content of the book, so it's okay that you don't have it yet and you haven't started reading it yet. Um, the, these books are in the church office. We want to make sure that you get one, but we're encouraging you uh, to to read it and, and pray it's a blessing to you. Well, let me open us up in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning and we're thankful for the Lord's Day, for this gift that you've given your people that we can stop our ordinary labors and focus our attention on the greatest privilege and the greatest duty that you've given us to worship you. Thank you for the gathering of the saints. And may we take delight as we meet together and bless your holy name. Lord, would you be with us this morning as we embark on this study of your servant Matian and Christianity and liberalism, the book that he wrote. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would learn much about your ways, about your providence, and about the things for which we should contend that we might preserve the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let me make a housekeeping comment before I get going. Now, the stuff that I'm going to tell you, no doubt, will generate many, many, many questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time for a Q&A uh, in Sunday school, but I want you to take note of questions that you have. I, I love talking about this stuff, uh, so I, I would be happy to field questions to interact with you uh, as we keep going, and I, I hope that Questions are answered along the way as we keep studying. Well, a hundred years ago, J. Gresham Machen, he was a professor at Princeton Seminary and one of the sharpest scholarly minds in the United States. He composed this watershed and incredibly influential book, which is also relevant for us, Christianity and Liberalism. Now, Machen began his book with the following declaration. He said this, in the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. That is, who is Jesus and what did he do? What is the gospel? How is a man to be saved? Issues for which we're willing to contend to stand firm in the truth. Now, we'll come back to that declaration in some future weeks, but you already see Machen drawing battle lines. And why is that? Well, he perceived a great menace under the guise of Christian terminology threatening what has been known as the historic Christian faith. Machen saw that doctrinal Christianity, the historic Christian faith, was under assault by theological liberalism, or as it's also called, modernism. 
And there was a desire among many in the church under the influence of the 19th and early 20th century social change, new scientific theories like evolution, industrialization, academic advancements. It was a desire to give Christianity a facelift for a new era, to throw off antiquated ideas, or so it was thought. And desiring to see Christianity in a new light, to claim new theories to explain the, the old doctrines, it was really a pragmatic solution to keep the core of Christianity, as it was argued, and it was argued that the core of Christianity is a life of love. A core of, the core of Christianity is just a sense of God in the soul of man. So let's just keep that, the essence of religion, in this more advanced and sophisticated age into which we have now entered. And the argument of the theological liberals was this, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you. This is a quotation of a 1922 thinker. If the church is going to attract and keep young people and address the needs of our day, it has to put away the narrow-minded bickering about doctrine and focus on the law of kindness and tolerance. Does that sound relevant? It's like it was written yesterday. The argument of theological liberals for over a hundred years continues to be the same, and it continues to gain great traction in our world. Now, we know, of course, some of the social issues, the issues in culture facing the church have changed. But the heart of the matter, an argument for toleration while dismissing truth, dismissing doctrine, hasn't changed at all. In fact, as it was in the early 20th century, there remains an extreme chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis put it in his lingo, as though everything today, all our ideas, are better and wiser and more sophisticated than what anyone else has ever thought before. Lewis loved to refer to this phrase, chronological snobbery. Um, it is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of style, out of date, has just been discredited. Of course, Lewis is challenging you. You need to ask, why was the idea put to the side? Is it just fashionable to put it aside? Has it actually been defeated with good arguments? Is it true or is it not true? Yes, it's true that there are things that we know now that our ancient fathers in the faith didn't know. Uh, things about the, the stars, we could say. The level of things on a cellular level. But the theological liberal approach was to throw off everything in the past. No one can rest their knowledge on a sacred book written over 2,000 years ago. Now, this controversy as to the core of Christianity into which Machen has now waded has really been brewing for years by the early 20th century. It's been a fight actually for well over 200 years by the time Machen comes on the scene and will publish Christianity and Liberalism in 1923. The controversy as to what constitutes the truth of Christianity and then a depregation of doctrine 
actually goes all the way back to the Enlightenment. Now, I'm probably digging up some bad history memories from high school or something for some of you. Uh, The Age of the Enlightenment, also called the Age of Reason. Thomas Paine, an American revolutionary pamphleteer, uh, this is what he called it, with its avid anti-supernaturalism and a dismissal of a personal God or any knowledge of Him. Now, Immanuel Kant is the key thinker here, and he's really shaping knowledge in light of the sufficiency of man's reason and man's power. That's Kant in a nutshell. The controversy into which Machen enters also makes us think about the growing subjective philosophy, a so-called Christian philosophy, of a man named Friedrich Schleiermacher and his influence on Christian thought. Schleiermacher, um, definitely not the influence on mutton chops, uh, but Schleiermacher is definitely the influence of liberal theology. He's called the father of liberalism. We, we could say that this guy is the father of thought in the modern world. And you can't grasp the crazy thoughts of Machen's adversaries or even the crazy thoughts of our own day and how we got here without understanding Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Schleiermacher. Now, Schleiermacher, he's an early 19th century thinker. He died in 1834. Schleiermacher argued for a recasting of Christianity. And this is really what he describes Christianity to be. The essence of religious emotions consists in the feeling of an absolute dependence. If you're really thinking about that, you're wondering, I don't even know what that means. Well, join the club. Uh, What do you mean? a feeling of absolute dependence. Schleiermacher is trying to react or he is responding to Immanuel Kant and his rationalism that everything is about my human reason. So Schleiermacher claimed that religious feelings, the consciousness of God, is an abiding reality whether we can know historical facts or not. And then he says something like this, Become conscious of the call of your inmost nature, I beseech you, and follow it. Does that sound a lot like follow your heart? Become conscious of the inmost call of your nature, the stuff within you. Be aware of it, and then follow it. Schleiermacher argued that the way of God, the way of salvation, the work of Christ, the way it's described, all of those things, it simply needs to be recast in every generation. Every generation needs to come up with what they think those things mean and define them according to their age. Now, this came to be recognized as a subjective approach to Scripture. And in the words of J.I. Packer, whom some of you are familiar with, uh, in a little book called Fundamentalism in the Word of God, which was published in 1958, he argued Here is the subjectivist approach to the Bible. The final authority for my faith and life is the verdict of my religious sentiment as I examine Scripture with an open mind. Thus, the proper ground for believing a thing is not the Bible, but it is my reason and my conscience. 
do my reason and my conscience commend this thing? That's how I know what truth is. In other words, if I can recast what he's saying, what I feel is true is true. And it doesn't matter what history says. And it doesn't matter what's historical. And it doesn't matter what doctrine is. What I feel is true is true. Now, the folks who were claiming these type of things in the early 20th century, about the time Machen writes his book, they have respect for the Bible. But ultimately what they're saying is, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. What matters is what I think and I feel when I read the Bible. Do you understand the difference? I come to the Bible, and it doesn't matter what the Bible says, but what I think and I feel as I read the Bible, that's what matters. Now, Kant and Schleiermacher's thoughts are quite complicated, but they are really crucial to grasp if we're going to understand the modern aversion to religious truth and the growing subjectivism that I determine what is true, which has redefined our world. And since we need to understand these things better and understand them at least at some level, I have phoned a friend. I've called in a Kantian and Schleiermachian expert, uh, Dr. Carlton Wynn, who's an RTS at WANA professor, a skilled apologist, a pastor in the PCA, and a friend, and he's been to our church before. Dr. Wynn will be with us next week and help us understand the German religious perspective a little bit in the 17th and 18th century and how it impacted discussions in America. Now, as you hear about it even today and next week, you may draw the same conclusion, humorous conclusion, that the American baseball player turned evangelist Billy Sunday drew who was a correspondent with Machen. And Sunday said this, uh, New York Times, February 19th, 1918, quoted in a sermon, if you turn hell upside down, you will find made in Germany stamped on the bottom. Now, Sunday was willing to say this, even though he was a son of German immigrants. But he recognized the rotten, unbelieving ideas that were flowing out of Germany and corrupting the church. But even as I mentioned those unstable foundations well before Machen's time, there was also a fight going on in the field of epistemology. Now that's their 25-cent word for the day. Epistemology, what in the world is that? It's the study of knowledge. How do we know stuff? That's what epistemology is about. How do we gain knowledge? How do we learn? How do we have knowledge of ourselves and of God? In the field of epistemology, from about the 17th century forward, there began to be a movement away from an Augustinian and Calvinistic thought process. Now, Augustine had famously said this, I believe in order to understand. Radically different than today's perspective, which is I understand in order that I would believe. I come and my mind is king, or my feelings are king. And when I understand it or I feel it, then it's true. Now, Augustine said, no, we come to Scripture, we come to the doctrine of God, we come to truth, submitting to God as the Lord. And I believe, and I hope my understanding will come around. 
right? I submit myself. And then we have Calvin's thought. Calvin said, as we talked about the knowledge of God, that biblical revelation were as though you put on spectacles. The Bible gives you the spectacles to understand the truth, to know who God is, to know who man is, to know who Christ is and His work, to understand how we relate to the Lord. But that shifted radically to a humanistic approach to thinking. You've probably heard this before. I think, therefore I am. You didn't know you were a philosopher or you had ties to philosophy with that statement. But that, that was a, a landmark statement of the Cartesian Revolution. Rene Descartes uttered this. I think, therefore I am. Impersonal natural laws explained in physics and math soon replaced God's revelation as the authority. So no longer is the Bible the spectacles to put on and to see the truth. Now, science tells you the truth. Now, physics and math tell you the truth. The material things that can be felt or seen or sensed supplanted the supernatural things, the spiritual things. Human reason and experience substituted for theological doctrine. And then that moved again as we traverse from about the 17th century through the 18th and 19th century into the modern era where the new cry of the soul has become this. I feel, therefore, I am. Whatever I feel is the truth is true for me, even if it's not true for you. Does that sound like the world you live in right now? How did we get to such a crazy place? Well, I tell you, brethren, that Machen anticipated that we would get to this place if in the hunt for knowledge, in the making of judgments and arriving at conclusions, philosophical reflection abandoned Scripture. God's Word is the only rule of faith and practice. And if we abandon that and give credence to either human reason or human experience, everything will tumble down. Facts in the minds of many, even professing Christians in Machen's day, facts were declared to be what I can feel or sense or study. And the consciousness is it's true because I experience it. All of that wicked thinking, really, began to be waves toppling the ancient boundary stones of biblical truth. Indeed, historical realities quickly became irrelevant. What matters is not what happened in history or whether it's true or not. What matters is what works. The quintessential American philosophy, pragmatism. What matters is not what's true, what matters is only what works. Now, these problems were pervasive philosophical earthquakes touching every single Christian denomination under the sun. But these 17th and 18th century adversaries erupted into a new foe in the 19th century, theological liberalism. Christianity redefined by liberal ideas. Now, in this climate, 
on Sunday morning, May 21st, 1922, the Baptist preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick, stood behind the pulpit as the associate pastor of First Presbyterian Church. Some of you should already have flags going up. Baptist preacher as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church. Something's weird here. In New York City, the home church of John D. Rockefeller, he preached this sermon. Shall the fundamentalists win? Shall the fundamentalists win? Who are the fundamentalists? Cora agrees. That's a problem. <clears throat> the fundamentalists were those of many Protestant denominations who were arguing for five immovable things. What are these five immovable things called the fundamentals? They are these. Scripture's inspiration and inerrancy. Christ's virgin birth. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the miracles of Jesus. These five fundamentals had been affirmed at the so-called five-point deliverance at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, sorry, Presbyterian Church in the USA, this was the northern branch of Presbyterianism, in the year 1910. So in 1910, just about roughly 13 years before Machen publishes the book, these were affirmed at a meeting of the General Assembly. A wealthy Presbyterian layman named Lyman Stewart and his brother Milton, also in 1910, started publishing and distributing essays defending these historic Christian doctrines, trying to counter the mounting liberal thought. And from 1910 to 1915, essays were published in 12 volumes. One of them was also by the soon passed away J.C. Ryle, by the way. Just a piece of trivia. These three million volumes went out. Three million volumes of these things. But the controversy over the fundamentals went on. And then these five fundamentals were reaffirmed again in 1916 at a Presbyterian General Assembly. So Fosdick, and we're going to hear more about him later, but you can, maybe can already tell if he's on the cover of Time magazine, what the world thinks. Fosdick, in his sermon, he, he argued for the toleration of those who modified traditional doctrine. He further argued that ev evangelical Christianity needs to be reconciled with the new knowledge about science and history and religion. Adoration of Jesus, according to Fosdick, doesn't need to be tied to the supernatural, to historical happenings. Fosdick said, <clears throat> we don't need to shut the doors of Christian fellowship to those who don't embrace the traditional doctrines of the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture or for those who may explain the miracles of Jesus or the virgin birth or the resurrection in a different way. For Fosdick and others like him, he argued the Bible is not a record of facts. The Bible is just a record of the adoration that the disciples had for Jesus. Their adoration of His God-consciousness, 
of His great love. The Bible isn't giving us rigid, literal things. According to Fosdick, we don't have to hold to the idea that the virgin birth actually happened or the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. Christianity is about what is felt towards Jesus in your heart and not about facts. Well, this sermon set off a firestorm of controversy that would produce Machen's work, Christianity and Liberalism. Machen has this bullseye in mind when he writes this book because Machen saw, as few others did in his day, Christianity without historic Christian doctrine, Christianity without the historical events of the virgin birth, the life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, isn't Christianity at all. Well, sum up, he said liberalism is a misnomer. You keep using that word, and you're not using it the way it should be used. That's not what liberal even means. And then he began to say stuff like this. To say all creeds are equally true is to say that all creeds are equally false. You see the logic there? If all you people adopt the same idea saying we all agree with one another, then everything is also false while it's also being true. That doesn't make any sense. So, hardline logic by Machen. Why did he battle about this? Christianity rests on truthfulness, on facts that are objective, and not just on feelings of sentimentality. Without those facts undergirding the Christian faith, is there truth at all? These are fighting words. And Machen went to war. And brethren, we should understand that Machen's war was not only against the theological liberals and their hack job to the Christian faith. It was also a war against those who held to traditional Christian doctrine, but tolerated the unbiblical, heretical, sick doctrine destroying the church. Machen was ready to fight about this. Now, the war in which Machen, in which he took up armor, spiritually and figuratively, it wasn't a Presbyterian war alone. Look at this. This was a cartoon uh, in the newspaper around the time called The Descent of the Modernists. I don't know how well you can read it. At this top, we have Christianity and then you don't believe the Bible's infallible, and then man isn't made in God's image, and then no miracles, no virgin birth, no deity, no atonement, no resurrection, agnosticism, atheism. This is where this leads. If you start rejecting these doctrines, you, you're abandoning the faith altogether. Isn't that patently obvious? Well, I think most of us would say yes, but it didn't seem to be the case to the liberals. This battle played out in the Presbyterian church first with massive consequences. But this was a battle that ended up being fought in nearly every Protestant denomination. The Baptists, the Methodists, the Episcopalians. <clears throat> it was called a Presbyterian controversy initially. But it was a battle among Protestants in every denomination as to what is the Christian faith. And the great grief here was it was Presbyterians versus Presbyterians, and Methodists versus Methodists, and Baptists versus Baptists. It should remind you of certain sections of Scripture like 
Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, when from within the Levites, a guy rises up and said, yeah, I don't, I don't really like Moses that you're in charge. Who do you think you are? And then they go to battle. Or it was like the Judaizers in the book of Galatians that Paul has to counter. There was a group of people, uh, Jewish, they call themselves Christians, who were telling the Galatians, you know, it's not really Christ alone that saves you. It's Christ plus your circumcision. It's Jesus plus your obedience to the law. Jesus' work isn't enough. You need more. You need works. You need your obedience. Machen's a New Testament scholar of the first rank, and he recognized things like this. Paul wrote to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But catch this. But even if we, meaning the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary than the one preached to you, we preach to you, let him be accursed. Fighting words, aren't they? Machen is recognizing, look, if what Fosdick is saying is right in his sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Then Paul should have said to the Galatians, you know what, the church is big enough to make room for the both of us with two different understandings of the gospel. It's a free country. You can hold to your view if you like. We'll hold to our, but we, we don't need to be so narrowly minded. Further, if Fosdick is right, Paul was totally wrong to even write the book of Galatians and to get in Peter's face, Galatians chapter 2, when Peter was acting in a manner inconsistent with the gospel. But that's not what the apostle Paul did or said. Why not? Because there's one gospel and only one. There's one view of Christ's life that's true and soul-saving and only one. If the Bible is just recording for us the impressions of people and they can make mistakes as they write it, brethren, where does that leave us? It leaves us with no good news, doesn't it? We want good news. And good news is about real things that really happened so that we might not have just the idea that we can be reconciled to God. No, what a wonderful thought that is, that we have the idea that we could know God, but that we would actually have reconciliation with God, that it would be accomplished because Christ Himself is our peace. On this front, Machen also no doubt had the words of Jude in mind in his striking comment. Jude opens his epistle contending with false teaching. And he says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear how strong the language is there? Contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. <clears throat> the faith is not talking about subjective faith. My faith. As though 
how I feel about Jesus or what I feel determines what is true. Jude is talking about the objective content of the faith. There is one faith. There is one immovable foundation, as we say in the Nicene Creed. There is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church built upon Christ the cornerstone with the apostles' teaching as the foundation. And this foundation is not tied to anyone's own experience. Jude isn't contending for the faith because some people have slightly different theories about things that we can tolerate. And I just want to tell you what my opinion is. If that were the case, he wouldn't be contending. Contending is a fighting word. No, he would just be offering a possible way to view doctrine. But he's actually contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why is he contending? Because the faith is under assault by ungodly persons who are twisting the truth, who are turning the grace of God into licentiousness. Now, Machen, while he doesn't attack the men arguing with him, which is an ad hominem argument, by the way, it's a logical fallacy. You see this all the time in politics, don't you? Don't talk about the issue, just attack the man. That's a logical fallacy. He doesn't attack the men. He attacks the ideas. That's the way to come at an issue. And he wants to show in Christianity and liberalism that encouraging a Christianity that isn't Christianity is going to destroy. The war here is what is Christianity? What are we to believe about God? What are we to believe about His Word? About Christ's work? About our salvation? About the church? And of course, these have been battlegrounds for centuries. And it's still an area where we have to contend for the faith. Because the devil is always aiming to provoke the question that he asked in the garden. Remember what that question was? Did God really say? But in this controversy, known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy, Satan's tactic has been to push falsehood from within the professing people of God. And Machen saw, if the liberals are followed, Christianity will collapse. If the church abandons the historic Christian teaching and embraces materialistic naturalism or embraces a subjective, anti-historical approach to the doctrines of the faith, the church will be destroyed. The truth will vanish. Ethics will have no foundation. Does that sound like a problem that we're dealing with today? It absolutely does. It is a major contemporary problem. Pilate's scoffing question to Jesus what is truth, is a relevant matter. Is there objective truth? Is there an historic, unalterable content to the Christian faith? Are ethics just left to the eye of the beholder? Is it a, a realm of shifting sand where every culture gets to redefine how things work? Or does God's Word give us a solid foundation not only for what to believe, but what we are to practice. Well, this morning, we're, we're really just getting our feet wet as we're examining our issues. I'm, I'm trying to provoke you. I'm trying to stir your interest that this 100-year-old book is incredibly relevant for our day 
and it helps us understand the theological controversies in our church. So having opened the can of worms on the subject, let me tell you where we're going in our study. We are going to work through Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. Just a reminder, we want you to get this. But we're going to work through it chapter by chapter in due time. Now, as I mentioned before, I, along with others, think that this is probably the most helpful and significant theological book of the 20th century, which is quite a thing to say. And as elders, we're recommending that you actually read it. So, read it. Take up and read. Use it to root your soul in the truth. But before we get to the book itself in our study, we're going to have five more classes, not counting today, on the life and context of Machen before we dig in. We're going to start next week with Dr. Carlton Wynn. Again, he's acclimating us to the views coming out of Germany and England in the 17th to the 19th century. And we'll get a taste of this because without it, you're not going to understand the theological landscape. Now, I'm going to follow that up with two extra two weeks to follow <clears throat> on 19th to early 20th century Presbyterian church history. Now, I have to touch on some other denominations along the way, but I'm going to introduce you to the thoughts, controversies, movements, and heresy trials of the 19th century. The downplaying of doctrine, the church splits, the rise of various ecumenical movements, the social gospel, all of that will prepare us for studying Machen's life. Now, pray for me, because it's a gargantuan task to try to teach those things to you. But then we're going to spend two weeks looking at Machen's life. Parks is going to teach us about Machen from his birth in 1881 to 1919 as we look at his upgrowing years, the influence of his mother, who's another champion of religious instruction in the home and a means to root Machen in the truth. We'll follow Machen to Germany where he nearly loses it all, uh, has a religious crisis, and then he gets settled in the truth and becomes a professor at Princeton. And then Pastor John will take us through the tumultuous years from 1920 to Machen's sudden death in January 1st, actually, 1937. <clears throat> in those few years, 17 years, Princeton Seminary implodes. Westminster Theological Seminary is started. Machen, like Martin Luther, is excommunicated. And a new denomination begins, which we now call the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. After these introductory weeks, when we're informed to the landscape, we're going to start taking up and reading Christianity and Liberalism chapter by chapter. Now, I'm aware that for some of you, history, and particularly church history, is not your cup of tea. But you cannot do theological reflection if you don't study history. Indeed, church history is only the study of God's glorious providence as He preserves His church. As Christ, the King and Head of His church, is advancing the church over against Satan's assaults. And if this study, Christian liberalism, shows us anything, it will show us Satan is a real threat and a persistent adversary. And yet, the Lord always has a remnant. The gospel light will not go out. Further, you probably heard it said, 
those who don't know history are bound to repeat it. Absolutely. That should carry some weight with us as a church. We would do well to learn from our forefathers in the past. We're not going all the way back to the time when people are actually dying for the truth. But if they were willing to die for it, shouldn't we think it's important enough to consider? If they're willing to fight over this and to give up everything they have in their earthly possessions, is it not worthy of study? Uh, These heroes of the faith are helpful to us to show us how to live in a crazy, messed up world. Now, speaking of history and books, I do want to mention as we close some books that are shaping our study. Uh, Again, I know some of you are not big readers Uh, not interested in deep historical reflection, but others of you can't get enough of good books. So I want to mention a few of them on the front end that if you wanted to learn more, you could read them. Here are a few. D.G. Hart and John Muther, Seeking a Better Country. Uh, This is the 300 Years of American Presbyterianism. That's a really helpful book. Uh, Ian Murray, Revival and Revivalism, the Subtitle here is helpful. The Making and Marring of Evangelical or American Evangelicalism from 1750 to 1858. We'll talk about a lot of stuff in this book as we go. David Calhoun, um, PCA man before he went to the Lord uh, in glory, uh, wrote a two-volume study of Princeton Seminary, which are tremendous, and I could recommend that to you. Uh, Biography of Charles Hodge, who is... uh, one of the most prominent professors at Princeton Theological Seminary, written by my church history professor at RTS, uh, Andrew Hoffecker. This is a great book, very interesting. A little more nerdy, uh, reformed and evangelical across four centuries. This is the Presbyterian story in America. And then maybe the most fascinating of them all, the Presbyterian controversy, fundamentalists, modernists, and moderates. Really interesting book, and you'll get more of that along the way. There are also some bi- biographical material, uh, J. Gresham Machen, a biographical memoir, uh, a light reading, Ned B. Stonehouse, uh, Machen, a bi- uh, biographical memoir there as well, a guided tour of his life and thought, and then D.G. Hart, Defending the Faith. There are others. Uh, I'm reading so many books right now on, on this subject because it, it interests me. But if you're interested, now that was fast, but if you're interested, this will be back up on our website and you can uh, ask me more and I can give you more information. As we embark upon this study, I hope you'll understand our landscape that we're in now and how we got there. But I hope that you see that Christian doctrine is worth fighting about. Not to just be a, a person who wants to fight about everything. But brethren, some things are worth dying over. There are hills to die on, and these are hills to die on. So may we be encouraged to stand firm in the faith, to contend for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. Let me pray for us. O Lord, our God, we come into your presence thankful for your servant, J. Gresham Machen, thankful for his labors, thankful for your providence, that you preserve the church, though Satan is always bringing assaults against her. Lord, we pray that you would liberate us from the unbiblical ideas of culture. We pray that you would root us in the truth. 
And we ask, O oh Father in heaven, that you would equip us to stand firm in our own day, to grow in our love for you. And we pray that as we study together, that you would deepen our affection for you and the truth that you have given to us, that we would take your word to heart and stand on these immovable doctrines of the faith. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.